1: The third characteristic is called two names, either Anatman or, whoops, Shunya or Shunyata. Um anatman means not, self, and shunyata, shunya means empty or emptiness. One of the most misunderstood terms in this tradition. Um, For most of us, as we move through our life, we have this feeling that at the core of me, there is something that even though everything is changing, there is something that remains the same. And traditionally, in Indian philosophy and the various Indian religions of the Iron Age, there was this notion that inside the core of a human being, was something called the Atman, was the soul. Just like this Gnostic idea in the West of an inner spark that we call the soul or the self. That doesn't change. And this idea was also tied into reincarnation, (coughs) that when you die, that mysterious, eternal, unchanging part of us um, goes on in some way. So, uh, in the time of the Buddha, he challenged this idea with this notion of anatman, which means not self. And there are two ways to consider this idea. One is, is that whatever arises, arises within conditions Nothing is born by itself. Everything that appears, appears within conditions, and it depends on those conditions for its life, but those conditions are impermanent. So the conditions are constantly changing. So the existence of a thing can't be separated from its conditions, so that everything inter-is is Everything is a being that is inter-being. In some schools, this is called dependent origination or codependent origination. The basic idea of dependent origination is that everything that has an origin, you can find within its origin conditions that support its existence. I would say in contemporary terms, we would call this deep ecology. Now this is an interesting thing to look at in terms of objects. So let's say a thought arises. Let's say a thought arises mixed up with anger and you're angry at somebody. Has anybody had this in their meditation practice? When I'm angry, usually I get revenge fantasies, how I'm gonna get them back. Um, and it can feel when you're really caught in a strong emotion, like what you're feeling is real, and it's as real as this floor is real. And then you come back to your breath, and a few minutes later, you're bored. And then a few minutes later, you're hungry. My grandmother used to always say this in her old age. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when something really has purchase on you, or when you're compulsive, or when you're obsessed with something, you're caught. Mm -hmm. And the problem with being caught is not just that dukkha arises, but the other problem with being caught is that you believe that that thought or that feeling or that sensation actually is a thing. And we do this a lot as nations. That when we have an idea of another nation, we believe that that is actually our truth. They are like that. So we've given them a self, given them a thing. So what the Buddha is saying is two things. The first is that nothing belongs to I, me, and mine. That nothing that arises belongs to a self. The other meaning of the term is that nothing that arises has a self. And what's meant here by self is an inherent substantiality. In Western philosophy, this is called essentialism, that nothing has in it an inherent essential self that a thing only exists dependent on its parts. For example, this orchid here. I say, here is an orchid. And if we took this orchid apart and I said, where is the essence of orchid? Is it in the very mild scent of an orchid? Is the essence of the orchid inside the stem? Is the essence of the orchid in the seed? Is the essence of the orchid the color? And we all know that none of those things are true, and all of them are true. That the orchid only exists as it inter-exists. It only exists as an intimate, dependently originating phenomenon. In other words, ORCID is just a linguistic attempt to create permanence of an impermanent and conditioned reality. Does this make sense a little bit? Yeah. I played this game once with my older son or I said, okay, the air is out here, My body is in here. At what point, and you try this too, does the air go inside your nose and become you? At what point does the air go inside of Michael and become Michael? And so he took his finger and he stuck it up my nose, (laughs) hoping to find the place where it stopped being air and started to be Michael. But Michael doesn't exist independent of air. That word independent is so interesting. As it has right in it, independence. Everything inter is. The second meaning of the third characteristic is called shunyata. This term, by the way, shu, oh, let's just back up. So, anatman means not self. So, there's two things going on here. One is, there's a critique of the idea that inside of you there is something unchanging. It's not no self, it's not self which is not saying there is no soul, it's saying not soul. In other words, every time you think, oh, that's, no, not. In Indian philosophy, sometimes that's called neti neti, which is two words, na, which means no, and eti, which is this or that. So na eti, na eti. Means not this, not that. Which I always think sounds like naughty naughty. <laughs> no, no. So every and I do this a lot with students when they're in meditation practice and they have cool experiences, and they're like, oh wow, yeah, now I see. And like, naughty naughty, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't hold on to that. It's not this, it's not that. So On the one hand, not-self is a critique of how we do that in our own experience, but also you can't separate these teachings from their cultural context. And this is also a critique of Indian religion. The idea that when you look closely at our verifiable moment-to-moment experience, you cannot find something within that experience that's unchanging. So this is a critique of the idea of a soul or a god or a self or a consciousness that's ongoing in time and space. Then, this term, which shows up nine times in the Yoga Sutra, but is never translated, interesting, uh, shunyata. Shu, is a verb, and it means, to swell. It's actually the same verb you would use to describe somebody who is pregnant. So, when somebody is pregnant, they're swollen with life. (coughs) And they're so swollen that there is no such thing anymore as a thing. Like when you're swollen with the baby inside you, there is no you anymore. There is a you psychologically, but ontologically, there is no you there because there is this interdependence so clearly visible of a mother and this growing baby, this other life, which both are independent on water and air and so many other conditions. So, Shunya is saying everything is so swollen with everything else that it is a perceptual mistake to think that there is such thing as a thing. That's how deeply intimate all things are with one another. That there is no such thing as a thing. So, the reason why this got translated into English as empty or emptiness, which is one of the trickiest words in contemplative vocabulary, is that emptiness, when you hear that term, you should ask yourself, empty of what? So, a thing, an emotion, a thought, a relationship, a car, a building, a city, a universe, is empty of an inherent substantiality. This orchid is empty of a fixed, inherent, ongoing thing. You see? Another way of saying it is it's swollen with everything. So emptiness is not a thing you realize... Emptiness is rather a strategy that you use to look at things in order to see that there is no such thing as a thing there, because it's impermanent and dependently arising. Dukkha is a pretty easy insight to discover. And there are various levels of discovering that insight. So one level might be sitting still on a meditation retreat and then starting to see that because your mind is so busy, you are actually creating for yourself such a narrow experience of yourself. Or what I was calling earlier the default motor network. That when our minds are distracted, everything's about us. And it's an impossibly narrow and constricted way to live. Or maybe we also realize that because it's possible to let go of our self-reference and really connect with the lives of other people or animals, Or this amazingly diverse planet that if other people are suffering, then we're suffering also. So all of us can gain insight into Dukkha. And the path in this tradition is when Dukkha arises, you embrace it. Because when you embrace dukkha, then craving doesn't have power. Most people think of this the other way, that because there's craving, there's dukkha. And maybe that's true. Right? We all usually translate dukkha this way. There is suffering because of craving. But that's not how the Buddha defined dukkha. So let's think of it in the opposite way, that craving doesn't cause dukkha, but that dukkha creates the conditions for craving. In other words, when suffering arises, if we don't embrace it, if we don't really open, if we don't fully know dukkha, then our response to suffering is craving. Does this make sense? Could you give an example?
0: Yeah, that um,
1: (coughs) (coughs) I'm bored, I'm home alone, my email is not working, and loneliness is arising. And it's painful to feel how I'm alone. So I go to the freezer to get some Ben and Jerry's chocolate ice cream. Which probably has some cool name for people who are lonely. And then, in that instant, um, I eat my way out of loneliness, but it actually doesn't work. So, because I was not able to turn towards the whole Of Dukkha, which is an experience of of lack Then I set up the conditions for craving You see Mm -hmm. so so what I'm trying to suggest is that most people think of this the other way around like because I crave I I create suffering Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to suggest is what if we think of it the opposite way is that because we can't turn towards our suffering without trying to satisfy it, we're actually creating the conditions for craving to have a lot of power. Okay? So we can all have insight into this. We can also all have insight into impermanence. One of the the biggest things that happens to people uh, who really sit still a lot is that they start to see the arising of phenomena, sensations, thoughts. They catch it, they let go, passes away. But when your mind starts getting still, you start to see not just the arising of phenomena, but you also start watching it dissolve. And then something happens where, as you get calmer and calmer, instead of just watching the arising of phenomena, and the passing away, the attention starts to turn more towards the passing away. And you start to really feel how every moment before it's complete is fading away, is gone. And for people who haven't had a lot of good support in their meditative practice, that's usually the phase that freaks people out. Because we've all meditated on death. It's what we did all of high school. But actually, (laughs) how can you start to meditate on the passing away of each moment? I remember once visiting a Tibetan teacher who was a tutor to His Holiness the Dalai Lama. His name is uh, Saltram Gyatso, Tempo Tsultrim Gyatso. He must be in his 90s now. And um, his practice when he was young is he lived in charnel grounds. Uh, So he lived in uh, India, and he lived uh, and ate and slept on dead bodies. And he had the best sense of humor of anybody I've ever met. Uh, He would break out into spontaneous song all of the time. And he's the first person I did my vows with. And one day I said to him, he was translator, was there too. Um, how long should I meditate for? When I meditate every day, like, how long should I meditate for? Half an hour, 40 minutes? And he just said, just blink your eyes. And I had to get the translator to make sure he understood the question. And the translator um his name was Ari e. Goldfield. He was actually a, a great lawyer. And then he started studying with Kempo culture and was so impressed. He uh, learned Tibetan and became his translator. But he was a great translator because he dressed like a lawyer. So he would like come in next to him with his briefcase and sit down. Anyways, I could tell you more stories. But every time you blink your eyes just to let go, Every time. When you blink your eyes, that moment is over. You can't get that again. So maybe a better translation of the term mindfulness would actually be mourning. The ability to mourn what we've been intimate with. Every time we blink every time we exhale, every time. That's it. Maybe if we were able to blink and let go, we would be able to forgive people a little more easily. Maybe it would be easier to come out of the closet with all of our eccentricities because we weren't trying to keep the whole package together all the time. Every time you blink, the moment is over. So, Doka and Anitya. Those ones are pretty easy to get a hold of. I wanna add that this third characteristic Anatman, Shunyata, is a lot more tricky. So as I'm teaching this through the next classes, once in a while you'll have an insight and you go, oh, you'll get it, and then you won't get it. So it's a lot trickier, I think, to start to get a handle on what's meant by Anatman and Shunyata. That there really is no thing there as a thing we, heard, we hear these you know little lines all the time from spiritual teachers like you are not your body. but actually what does that mean? We are so invested in being real or nowadays people say, Being authentic. I'm trying to be authentic. But actually, what if our greatest fear is not, as Freud says, and as Nietzsche says, and as Kant says, the fear of death. What if our greatest fear is actually that in this moment, we do not exist the way we think we exist. That our life is not actually happening to a self that's gaining air miles in there <laughs> there's a saying that self-knowledge is never good news that every time we open up there is some daily trauma to our ego because it's trying to find some way of getting secure in a really uncertain and fragile and unreliable reality. In Ontario, in the summertime, there are these bugs that live on small lakes called pond skaters. Maybe you've seen them. They have long legs. And they sit on top of the water. And through their legs, they feel vibrations of other insects. And they move horizontally across the water. And I think that pond skaters are the perfect mascot for this lineage, this line, this tradition. Because pond skaters walk on water. They carve a life. Out of a ground that's impermanent? What if we're misguided when we're trying to always look for what's eternal and what's permanent? What if instead we turned the other way and learned how to embrace a life of water, a life that is more fluid, that we used impermanence as the ground out of which? We carved a life, like the pond skater. I don't have any tattoos, but I guess if I got a tattoo, it would be a big pond skater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Through practice, whenever we have insight into something, we naturally begin to cultivate its opposite. So the more you have insight into impermanence, the more you begin to cultivate stability. So that we trust something deeper than our attempts to create permanence. And this gives us a deeper emotional and perceptual stability. We touch a deeper sanity the more we open up to impermanence. When we have insight into dukkha, when we open up to distress, we naturally start to cultivate well-being. And we start making choices that bring us real nourishment not superficial or false nourishment. And when we open up to the empty nature of reality we start to cultivate resilience and confidence, shraddha. A confidence in something deeper, more creative, and more resilient than this personality that we're always trying to make for everybody else. Maybe trying to create a personality all the time is what is so exhausting. Maybe sometimes when we finally sit still and we find that really we're just sleepy, maybe it's because we're so exhausted from telling ourselves the same stories all the time. For who? So mindfulness and intimacy are practices of devotion. They're practices of bhakti. They're practices of being devoted to our moment-to-moment experience with our whole heart and not being afraid. Not being afraid to let go. Learning how to stop and learning how to love. I'm glad you're writing this down. Learning how to stop running away. From Dukkha, learning how to stop fooling. How do you stop fooling yourself? And then, in the stopping, learning how to love. So, the last thing I'll say is that this whole practice of what I'm sketching out today, which we're going to go into much deeper is not a self improvement project. It's a practice of renunciation. It's learning how to let go until you're stripped bare with the confidence that there is something underneath what you're constructing all the time that is much more creative and loving and odd. People say that the goal of spiritual practice is nirvana. I would translate that as eccentricity. That actually, as we become less self-centered, we become more and more eccentric. Because we're free to not be anybody. I'm not talking about superficial eccentricity. Actually, most people I know who are on the outside very eccentric are usually on the inside quite stiff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But real renunciation, where the things we're grabbing onto, whether they're external objects like the right... Uh, club, and the right car, and the right apartment, in the right neighborhood. It actually doesn't make a difference. One of my closest friends is so poor. And she is the most content person that I know. She really hasn't got anything. And she's so content. Sometimes when we're trying to get more and more stuff, we don't see how it's actually trying to secure this hole we feel inside of us that can't be secured with any stuff. And I don't just mean like physical things like the right car or house or something, but I mean um, the way we try and secure this self with uh, a persona or notoriety or um, RRSPs without even ever turning around and seeing what motivates that. It's not just greed or it's not just ambition, it's also that deep down the self is a dependently existing relationship. Deep down, the self is nothing but relationship. So it doesn't exist as a thing. So when you try to ground that thing with stuff, it doesn't work. Because it can't be grounded. Because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And then we forget. So... um. I hope that we've covered two very important points. One is mindfulness, and the other is yoga, or intimacy. And how when you come back over and over to the object of meditation, we return again and again to our life in the present moment. And secondly, that the more we come back again and again and again, the more we start to develop insight into the three characteristics. And we're going to go through this process with psychological precision over the next few days so that we can start to learn how this comes alive in our life and how we can learn how to stop fooling ourselves. And return again to beginner's mind. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth, tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.